This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we are kicking off the year 2022 with a bang, with a great interview with one of our favorites. That's Holly McKay. So if you're not familiar with Holly McKay, she's an author, a journalist, and a war correspondent. And in addition to that, she finds time to be a humanitarian. But Holly is the best-selling author of the book that we named the book of the year for 2021, Only Cry for the Living Memos from Inside the ISIS Battlefield. She's been on this podcast twice before, so episode 188. We spent a ton of time going into that book and her time on the ground with Syria or in Syria with ISIS and all the things that were going on at the time. And then episode 222 of this podcast, we had a very, very short interview where we talked about what was going on in Afghanistan. That was the first in a line of episodes called Botching Afghanistan in that series. But the thing is, is in this interview today, we go into a ton of detail over the last five months that she spent in Afghanistan because, guys, she was in Afghanistan when it was falling to the Taliban, right? So when the United States decided they were going to pull out of Afghanistan and almost immediately the Taliban took over, she was in Afghanistan. The The night that we talked uh, for it, that ended up being episode 222, she's in a building in an area where the Taliban is is coming in, right? At that moment, she doesn't know if she's safe or not. And again, you know, she held it together for our interview. We talked a little bit afterwards, but we couldn't really get into details. It, it was a rough situation. And I, I, you know, talked to a bunch of you guys saying, hey, we need to pray for her right now. Things are things are absolutely crazy. So she was right there in the middle of that. So we're going to get into all that detail on this particular interview. We're going to talk about some of the misconceptions as to kind of what's been going on in Afghanistan, how the media has been covering it. And she gets pretty fired up in this interview as well, especially when we start talking about the corruption of the Afghan government that was taken over by the Taliban. I've never seen her so animated in any of her interviews or anything else that she's done. She got she got pretty angry at those different points. But we also talk about what she's going to be doing in the future, what we can expect in 2022. And guys, I'm not going to keep her from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Holly McKay, welcome back to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. We're so happy to have you on. And here's the deal right from the very jump. Everyone's already heard this by now. If they've been listening to the show and you don't have to pretend to be surprised because I already told you off air, but we have named your book that you released in March of this year. Only cry for the living memos from inside the ISIS battlefield as the book of the year for 2021. Um, just to be honest, like, you know, this has been the most prolific year of reading for me personally, read, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of around 45 books. That's a ton uh, for a guy like me. And this one just stuck out like a sore thumb as the best book of the year. Um, but I I guess for you, having spent this much time, I mean, it's about nine months since the release of the book. How is the book done and what has the reception been uh, of what you've written? Uh, well, I think, you know, the reception that I've received has been pretty, pretty positive and And I hope that I'm able to paint a really different picture for people about this, uh, about what was happening in Iraq and Syria during the time of ISIS um, and sort of come at things from a very intimate personal level as opposed to just throwing very dry policy notes or statistics out there. I really think it's important and something I try to do as a journalist and writer is to, to really write from that place of humanity and to give people um, a picture of something that's 
you know, looking at it from a micro level, which then en enables them to really understand things from a macro level. And I think that's a, uh, it's often lost. There's this idea that journalists have to be uh, completely removed or completely uh, compartmentalized. And I don't think that always does justice to the story. So I very much try to, to bring the readers in. So I, I hope that, and my feedback has been that it has resonated with people. Um, as I said, my head has been buried in Afghanistan for the past five months, so um, I, I really don't have any idea how it's done or, or anything like that. So I tend to stay away from those things and just put the product out there and hope that people uh, read it. Yeah, we'll certainly get more to Afghanistan here in just a second. But one more question on this particular book. When talking with authors, we've had a lot of authors on this show they always kind of have a little bit of not regret, but they look back on their book and they're like, okay, I wish I would have done this a little different. I would have massaged this section a little bit differently. Looking back on your book, and I know you've been buried in your work in Afghanistan over the last several months. Is there anything that you would have done differently? Is there anything you wish you could take back? Just fixing some typos. <laughs> That's about it. I try not to, to dwell too much. Um, you know, on what's already happened. And obviously, when you are a writer and journalist, you're constantly learning, constantly growing. I mean, I write so much that I would hope that my writing uh, continues to sort of improve every day. So sometimes you look at things and go, oh, gosh, I should have structured it differently or whatever. But I think that's just that's just part of growth. And, and um, as long as the story is out there, and that's the most important thing to me. Well, some of the biggest advice that I give to guys is you should always be able to look back on the guy you were five years ago and be at least a little bit embarrassed. I can't imagine what it's like for a writer because I look back at, I'm not a professional writer and I look back at stuff I wrote five, six years ago and I'm like, are you like a wind up monkey? And then you just started mashing on the keyboard like this. This doesn't make any sense. So I can imagine it being pretty tough for you, but let's go ahead and get into Afghanistan. Cause I know that's what our listeners want to hear a lot about. And that's what you've been talking about and thinking about for a long time. But you know, not too long ago, before we get right back into it, you arrived back in America after having spent several months, you said five months in Afghanistan, um, and you were there, including the fall of the country to the Taliban. And so I guess in the nicest, most relaxed way to start possible, what is it like being back in the good old USA? Uh, it's, it is a little bit of an adjustment. Um, I... Yeah, I, I really, I mean, obviously, I love being in, in the US and, and seeing friends and, and being able to, to go and, you know, go to the ATM and withdraw money. That's something I couldn't do in Afghanistan. Um, so, you know, there's certainly things that you miss and Starbucks and simple things. Um, but I do miss it. You know, I really, I love the work that I do, even though it can be challenging and it can be very frustrating when you're in the moment. I can't tell you how many times in Afghanistan I said, I'm leaving, I'm leaving tomorrow. I've had enough. I'm going, I'm going. And of course, you know, I, I didn't. But um, but I really do love that work and I, I love the people. And yeah, it's it's my heart is very much there and, and I do miss it. So um, I will be back. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's certainly apparent, you know, even whenever you're posting now that you're back in the United States, that there is this longing for this place. And you've been very, very, uh, you've, you've beautified Afghanistan for a lot of people that only see it as this war-torn country with, you know, rubble and blood in the streets, uh, which, you know, it is that, but it's also a very beautiful country with a lot of beautiful people in it. But when you're gone, this is one thing that I was really curious about when I was preparing for this interview, when you're gone for such long stretches and you're in parts of the world that are in you know, murderous turmoil and experiencing almost unfathomable evil and darkness. 
how does it make you feel? And you may just be completely insulated from it, but how does it feel when you come back to America and people are, you know, in the streets or on social media or at universities talking about how horrible the United States of America is and how evil of a country it is? It is frustrating. And, and I think a lot of times I, I don't really understand it. And, you know, people come and, and I, I never want to, um, I never want to take, you know, people always say to me, oh, it must be, you know, come back and listening to complaints and things. And everybody has problems in life. Everybody has challenges and struggles and things that they're upset about. And I never want to compare my experiences in any way that would diminish what other people are going through. But I do find a lot of the times I'm, I'm just very confused by the sort of complaints that come or, or sort of the things that people fixate on and, and really just... Um, I guess the, you know, the obsessions with social media and comparison and, and the, the, the sort of the, that kind of want and, and I hate to say it, but so much superficiality. And I, I find mm -hmm. it really difficult to relate to because I just, I don't understand it. Um, and so the longer that you spend overseas, the harder it sometimes is to kind of come back and, and immediately reinsert into that life. And, and I, I think what it does is it makes me grateful that, I was able to, you know, at a very young age, find such a strong purpose in life, because I think at the end of the day, we are all looking for purpose in different ways. And you see that, um, you know, in, in so many ways, people are looking for some meaning, and they often don't know how to find it or how to, to incorporate it into their daily lives. And so for me, I'm just, I'm very grateful that I'm very clear on what it is that I, I believe my calling in life is. And, and I can't imagine sort of having to, to flail around, um, looking for that. And, and that's something I see a lot of people in the U S struggle with. Well, I'm assuming that a lot of, a lot of that comes from the fact that you used to be on the Hollywood beat. I mean, you, you were living this kind of weird life with celebrities and people whose, whose images and their super, their superficiality was their business. Right. And so I think that that's kind of informed what you've done now in terms of Afghanistan, but I want to go ahead and take us all the way back to August of 2021. Okay. So you're in Afghanistan. Uh, the United States pulls almost all their military personnel out of the country. The country almost immediately falls into the hands of the Islamic fundamentalist terrorist organization known as the Taliban. But specifically, I want to go back to the night when you and I spoke. Okay. So that was the night uh, that, you know, we talked and it turned into episode 222 of this podcast, the first in a series that I called Botching Afghanistan. We can only talk for about 10 minutes. Uh, we couldn't get into real specifics about where you were or what your immediate plans were. Uh, my understanding is that the Taliban at that time that we were speaking, they were either in the area that you were in or perhaps even in the building that you were in. And I just got to tell you, Holly, we were covering you in prayer over here. Like I immediately messaged people. I was like, she's, she's keeping it together because she's a professional, but she's in it right now. And, and I don't really know if she's going to be safe or what that looks like. And I know that we're not unique in that. I know there were a lot of people thinking about you and praying about you, but take us back to that time period when the country is falling and you're in country, what's going on? So, um, I, yeah, I was already in the country, uh, prior to the fall and was working in Kabul and, 
then um, so there's somebody by the name of General Dostum. And so I'd known General Dostum for for many years and, and spent some time with him in Turkey. And he was sort of, I don't know, I guess he's been personified a little bit in there was a movie that came out a few years ago called 12 Strong. But essentially, he was the warlord when the US initially went into Afghanistan after September 11. And he's the initial person who who kind of took um, US special forces in to kind of take the Taliban out. So he was known as this sort of very strong man. He was very controversial, having committed a lot of um, alleged human rights abuses. And but but nonetheless, this sort of very sort of strong, powerful figure. Um, and someone who would never really think would ever give up the fight, if that makes sense. So uh, I know, you know, his people very well. And they said, well, you can go and do an embed with General Jostrom. He's from the north in Mazar. Um, and so at that point, uh, you know, that was a that was a, a compelling story. So my photographer, Jake, and I decided um, that we would fly to Mazar and you know, it was tenuous because a lot of the provinces around Mazar had already fallen to the Taliban. But we, you know, I, I guess, you know, put the trust into the Afghan commandos and the resistance forces that were on the ground there. And Mazar had always traditionally been a very strong resistance place. Um, so we went to Mazar. Um, I remember we flew, I think it was a very early on a Thursday morning. And you know, you sort of get there and the city was the city that I'd remembered from previous trips to Afghanistan. It was very vibrant. Uh, the markets were very much alive. People were doing, going about their thing. And then just sort of day by day, you saw things start to go a little bit quiet and, and people were suddenly at the bank trying to get their money out. And everybody we knew was sort of fleeing to Kabul. Um, and, it, you know, it just happened so quickly. And then by that Saturday, um, we were, you know, you were seeing people fleeing from from just outside Mazar in these little tuk-tuks, these little rickshaws, uh, just with everything they had because the Taliban's were taking over, um, you know, these areas. And then next thing you know, I was with an interpreter who who got a call and said, you know, they've broken through the first front line, and there was three. And, you know, we're basically surrounded, and I couldn't, there was no flights to go back to Kabul. Uh, and, you know, so it was just, by that night, um, that's when we, you know, we went out and we kind of hurried back because it was so eerie outside and you saw the Taliban's just coming in on motorcycles and, and it was sort of that that quick and that easy. And and so we were sort of in a hotel just watching watching the Taliban's come in and, and basically take over every inch of the city and then had to sort of figure out what we were going to do and Kabul fell the next day, which obviously made it really impossible to just kind of get any assistance. Um, so it was on us. And, and from the beginning, I was a big advocate of just going to talk to the Taliban. To me, um, it was an uncertain time because we didn't know how they were going to respond to foreigners, to journalists, to a woman. Um, but, you know, it became very apparent that really was the only way that that we could we could leave. And, and I and we needed to leave because the the staff at the hotel had basically stayed there for us and and they were scared and they were all mm. previous you know government intelligence employees and they needed to leave themselves and so it sort of got to a point where i just said okay we need to do this now um and and so that was the approach that we took well holly i'm assuming nobody listening to this right now has ever walked up to a member of the Taliban to strike up a conversation. But, but honestly, like take me through that because you talk about it so casually because, yeah. because you're a professional journalist, you just talk about it like, Hey, this is part of the job, but there had to be at least some fear in the back of your mind. And you, you alluded to it a little bit ago that this may not go well, 
just walking right up to the Taliban that's now been in, you know, infused with all, all these new weapons and all this new excitement and confidence. Is there a part of you that thought this might be it for me that I'm walking, I, I'm potentially walking to the gallows here? Um, I think initially there was a part of me that, you know, just kind of was concerned about how, I guess it's, it's a surreal feeling, really. It's something mm-hmm. you sort of look at and you think, oh, my goodness, nobody nobody can help me right now. Um, mm-hmm. There is nothing anybody can do. And, you know, that, that and this wasn't in the plan. Um, and I think, you know, that moment, especially on that first night, was, was very unsettling. Um, but quickly you have to, you can't panic. And I think that's something we, as war reporters, that we're very much trained to do is, is you you have your moments, you let it pass, and then you get mm-hmm. your logical brain on. So I think, you know, that certainly was a huge risk factor in it. And, um, and that definitely crossed my mind. But, you know, at the end of the day, I felt that it was the best choice and I felt intuitively that it was the best choice. And so I wasn't particularly scared. And we, we sort of used an intermediary who came to the hotel and, and, and talked to us and, and he was a, a local business person who knew the Taliban's. And so then he kind of went to them and told them where we were and who we were and what we were doing. And um, yeah. And then the next thing, you know, um, two Taliban elders were, were at the hotel and, and we were in the basement with them and getting into their car. Um, so that was that was sort of the approach and it was very strange. And and we got into the car and, and you know these these two men looked at looked at us and sort of said, Welcome, welcome to our country. So it was very bizarre. Um, and then immediately, you know, I kicked into journalist mode. I'm like, well, can I interview you? And so, you know, I'm and going in this car with these Taliban's and, and at the same time interviewing them. Um, and at that point, I, I wasn't scared anymore because I felt that they weren't going to harm me in any way and that, you know, that they had sort of this obligation to, uh, it's a Pashtun Wali obligation to protect guests in their country. And so I think um, I think it's important, and this was often lost in the media, I think it's very important also to acknowledge that the Taliban is not Al-Qaeda, it is not ISIS, and they have a very different ideology and a different uh, focus um, in in terms of what they were doing. And it was also important to remember that at that point, they were no longer an insurgency, they were a government. And so obviously, you know, our memories of the Taliban, of them as an insurgency, you know, committing these heinous crimes. But at that point, it was that immediate switch of, well, now we're a government and we're trying to be recognized. And so they were obviously going to, to take a very different tactic um, with foreigners in their country. And they're still in the process of trying to figure that out. And from the outside looking in, we'll get more into that in a second. It doesn't look like it's going particularly well. But my understanding is that you kind of going back to right after you, it's kind of settled into what was happening at, you know, after the immediate fall. You were eventually able to escape. I, I think you said to Uzbekistan, you were able to uh, escape Afghanistan to Uzbekistan. But you weren't out of country very long before you came back in to Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So kind of take us through this, the, the decision, or I guess how you got out, and then yeah. almost the immediate decision to come back. So a different group of Taliban's, um, you know, with some help because the Uzbeks had to open the border. The border was closed. Um, quite frankly, neither of us wanted to leave. But at that point, it was impossible to get back to Kabul, given the situation that was happening there. Um, so we the only way really was Mazar is, is relatively close to the Uzbek border. So we had to get some coordination and having the Uzbeks open the border specific for 
specifically for us and the these younger set of talibans um so you know once these elders took us dropped us and then this sort of younger set of talibans um you know very young guys you know taking selfies wielding their weapons very you know very very bizarre um they then escorted us to the border to ensure that we could get through the checkpoints and we weren't going to have any issues with that so um it really was the only option at that point um just because of the the tenuous situation and uh what was happening in Kabul. So we went um, into Uzbekistan and, you know, I think Jake and I immediately, you know, we knew that we weren't, you know, everybody kept saying, are you coming home? Are you coming home? And I sort of wasn't going to admit to people I'm actually going back. <laughs> but, um, but you know, I kept that very much on the down low. So we did a little bit of work in Uzbekistan and then a little bit of work in, um, in Dushanbe and uh, Tajikistan. And then we're just like, okay, we're ready to go back now. Um, so the Uzbeks had just opened the border. And so, you know, we still had our valid media visas, which the Taliban's were still honoring and are still honoring at this point. And basically, yeah, we just literally walked across the border. We got stamped out of Uzbekistan. I had my backpack and my roller bag, and we just walked along that same bridge that we'd been taken out of. It's called Friendship Bridge. And we um, next thing you know, I'm, I'm at this little passport hut on the border and there's a Taliban running it and he doesn't even sort of ask any questions or look at us. He just stamps my passport with this new Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan stamp and and off we go and we do this sort of heinous 12-hour drive back to Kabul. So you spent the next several weeks after that, or at least that's what it seemed like on social media, kind of just driving around Afghanistan. And the thing that was unique about it, and you, you constantly pointed this out, is you basically had unfettered access to a country that you could have not seen in that way at any time before or at any time that you had been living over there and working over there. Is that kind of what it was like, you know, just basically being able to go essentially yeah. wherever you wanted to? Yeah, previously, I mean, that was completely impossible. You could mm -hmm. barely travel much outside of Kabul by road. And um, there was certain, you could do certain commercial airline trips to certain cities but you know they were they were limited as well but um but yeah all of a sudden it was it was this entire country that was open up to me that had never been before so we did a lot of travel over the past few months pretty much to to almost every province of Afghanistan and a lot of really long um road trips and so uh, you know I got to see really a lot of the country and a lot of I think it's really important. Too much of the, the media lens often tends to come outside of Kabul in the way that, that people in villages and rural areas think and, and act is, is, is incredibly different to the mindset in Kabul. And I think that's a, really important to cover that because it is very different to Kabul and we need to get that very rounded sense of exactly what is happening in Afghanistan. So I devoted a lot of time to, to going to those rural areas and, and talking to the people and, and trying to understand how their lives would change and, and, and shape. Well, I think that dovetails nicely into what I wanted to ask you about now, which is I'm sure there are a lot of misconceptions about what's actually going on on the ground or what's been going on on the ground in Afghanistan over the last several months. I'm sure some news uh, and some news outlets and stories have been sensationalized for clicks and for headlines and, you know, basically the Twitterverse. So I, I guess I want to give you a little bit of time to set the record straight for us. You know, describe the, the good, the bad and the ugly going on in Afghanistan and maybe some things that uh, people are getting wrong. So I think overall, you know, if I wasn't in Afghanistan and I was just reading social media or reading uh, news headlines, I would think, oh, my goodness, this is there's mass slaughter, you know, how everybody's being dragged from their homes and killed and all sorts of terrible things are happening. 
And, and that's really not the case. Um, I know that's not often the, the what people want to hear. I think there's sort of this very much this drive, especially from a lot of people who have left the country or from a lot of politicians who, who kind of want to look at it like the Taliban's are committing, um, you know, this sort of crazy genocide. And, and it's quite frankly, it's, it's not true. And there's a lot of misinformation that was perpetuated. And certainly, certainly there was isolated cases of, of retaliation of, of people being, um, you know, taken or, or disappeared or whatever it may be. And, and that did happen. But it was very much the exception, not the rule. And I certainly think the Taliban's need to be held to account when those things happen. But sort of I think the scale to which they were being perpetuated and, and shaped in, in in the media were very inaccurate. And there was just an incredible amount of disinformation. And I'll I'll give you one example. So there was sort of a rumor that was going around and it was being, you know, repeated on Instagram stories by the likes of Kim Kardashian and other people, which have huge followings. Mm-hmm. And the story was, because many people asked me about it, the story was, oh, the Taliban beheaded a girl in, in uh, I think it was in Mazar. And when I looked into it, this girl had been killed in July, so before the Taliban came to power, and she wasn't killed by the Taliban. She was killed by an internal family fight, and she wasn't beheaded. But yet that story became this sort of rallying cry um, for everybody that was trying to leave the country. And, you know, even today I'm sort of... uh, bombarded constantly with with people how you know desperate to leave desperate to get out people you know american groups saying oh so and so is under threat and threat and threat and and when you dig down i you know i have to question often they aren't under threat the fear is contagious so when people think oh um, you know, my neighbor's scared and, and my sister-in-law's scared and, and, you know, everyone I know is scared, so I have to be scared too. Um, and so I just sort of found that when you sort of dug deep, um, there's just a lot of fear and everybody wants to leave. And But when you really dig deep, there's only, I guess, a, a small subsect that have a genuine um, threat against them. And, and certainly those people need to be taken care of. And a lot of them, um, you know, need that support to leave the country. But it's not it's not on the mass scale that is sort of being perpetuated. And, and having said that, you know, for women and for a lot of people, it's incredibly difficult. And, and they don't have a lot of choice but to leave. But just sort of in terms of the, the threat scale, I, I do think that was largely... Um, largely overblown. Now, in terms of uh, kind of this mass slaughter that people thought was going to happen imminently, a lot of sober-minded journalists and commentators have said, well, no, they were never going to do that immediately, but it's coming. I mean, right now they're, they're trying to get money. They're trying to get you know money from the United States and other countries to basically flush into the country because of the issues that have happened with their economy crumbling and their, their currency crumbling. But is it coming? Like, I know you can't tell the future, but are we going to see that in the next months or years? Again, it's very impossible to, to say. And, you know, the Taliban's can be very unpredictable in the approach they take. And it really depends on, on the approach their leaders take. But, you know, certainly the sense that I got from them, you know, and I, I met with many of them um, on a daily basis was that they were they very much wanted to be seen as a legitimate government and they wanted to be seen, you know, by the world and, and recognized. And I think that they understand the ramifications that come if they are going to to commit some of those um, very harsh abuses. So I think they they have that to weigh up and and. I, I, I couldn't say with confidence that that is going to happen. I don't think anybody can say that with confidence. And I think when we try to do too much 
um, you know, predication in the media, it tends to then feed into into sort of this fake news narrative. So I think the important thing is really dealing with the reality that is exists right now. And the reality that exists right now is that the Taliban's are trying to portray themselves as something of a legitimate force, which is really hard for us as Americans to wrap our head around because we've known the Taliban's not only in their brutal rule in the 1990s, but we've known them to be this terrible insurgency that have, have killed many, many innocent people. Um, so it, it is hard for us to kind of see them outside of that light. Um, but I think it's important that we do that because, and as, I've, as I said, they are not an insurgency anymore. They are, for better or for worse, a, you know, a functioning government. That is weird to even hear you say that they're a functioning government because even even in dysfunction, they have to function in some way, shape, or form. And, and I was going to ask you, and, and again, you're absolutely right, it's almost impossible to see what next week's going to look like, but it's like, hey, what do the next three to five years look like for the Afghan people? It's just impossible to know. All we can do is pray that it's not horrible and violent and bloody and terrible. But my understanding is, is that there is an impending humanitarian crisis happening right now inside of Afghanistan, and it's not just people suffering you know, violence or oppression at the hands of the Taliban. Taliban. We're entering into the winter months, right? So we're, we're technically already there. And I've seen some reporting, but it's again, it's hard to corroborate anything, you know, stateside that we should expect to see hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, including children, starve to death or face famine induced health issues that could also kill them. How accurate is this forecasting? Because I've heard it from people that are somewhat in the know and then I've heard it from dorks on Twitter. So kind of help us set the record straight a little bit. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, Afghans are incredibly resilient people. And, and mind you, Afghanistan has been a poor country for a very, very long time. Um, and, you know, but their ability to survive and, and really one thing that I, I love about the Afghan people is their ability to support one another. So, um, you know, when, when families and things are starving, you know, other families will try to help them. And, and so there is this, you know, incredible camaraderie um, where Afghans really, um, you know, care for one another. But the situation is is incredibly dire um, economically. And obviously that, that spirals into humanitarian crisis. You've got people that just the level of not only unemployment, you've got inflation. To give you some context, when I first went to Afghanistan, the Afghani was about 70 cents to the dollar, and it is now over over 100. So that gives you a sense of just how quickly that currency has fallen. And, and in addition to that, the unemployment, the inflation, the lack of NGO, the lack of uh, mm -hmm. you know humanitarian organizations that have left and haven't come back. And, um, you know, and I think I think, you know, that, that in large part comes from the U.S. freezing $9.5 billion uh, when the Taliban took control in August and they froze that money, which is something that the Taliban obviously weren't anticipating because that money had been earmarked for the previous government. However, I would beg to say that much of that money would never have gone to the Afghan people anyway. The previous government was incredibly corrupt. It's something mm -hmm. that infuriates me hugely because that is our money as U.S. taxpayers that they effectively stole from us and from the Afghan people. And I think since the Taliban have come, there's sort of been this whitewashing of the previous government as if they were leading some country into some great democracy, which was never the case. I mean, people in Kabul obviously got to, you know, learn to play music or, you know, have a little bit more freedom. But essentially, the, the Ghani-led government and previously before that, the Karzai-led government were thieves. They all stole on every possible level. 
stole money. So, so much of the money, you know, the $2 trillion that we as, as US taxpayers devoted to Afghanistan, it could have been Dubai by now, but it's not. And that is because people, their greed overtook everything. And it was, again, the, the Afghan people who really suffered, the poor Afghan people, and they're suffering again and suffering in an even worse way right now. So they are resilient. They are used to these struggles, but the struggles are obviously a lot more widespread now. There, There is no middle class. There are people that, um, you know, have just completely dipped below the poverty line. And it's, it's, it's hugely concerning because there is no medical supplies. It's impossible to get money out. Um, you know, you can't, you can't get a Western Union transfer. You can't go to an ATM. Um, and there's such limited amounts of money that you can get out. So there is this really a huge cash problem on top of that. And I think that the United States has to to reckon with that and make a very uncomfortable decision, which, you know, is not certainly not going to be popular. But the decision is, do we want to somehow work with a, a government, um, you know, that has committed a lot of human rights abuses in the past or are we willing just to turn a blind eye again and let the Afghan people suffer? Because it's not the Taliban's who suffer. The Taliban's were never paid a salary for 20 years. They used to, you know, this and and they'll get by and, you know, they'll even tell me we can operate on a very low overhead. We aren't fighting for money. We, we fought for 20 years uh, with no salary because we believed in our cause. Whereas it's the Afghan people who will continue to suffer um, from any sanctions and, and the freezing of money. And, and that's something that I think Washington has to take huge responsibility for because we created a country that was completely propped up by foreign aid and by a foreign fo- footprint and by you know these external things that never came from Afghanistan itself. So when that was sort of immediately yanked away, there was nothing left. Um, so I think that the Washington has a huge responsibility to the Afghan people and that, um, that we, we are going to have to make some very uncomfortable decisions, but we have to, you know, Afghans have suffered enough and we have to, to start thinking about their best interest, not our best interest in, in dealing with the humanitarian crisis. Well, just briefly, Holly, before we move on, I, I want to go back into that corruption piece that you're talking about with the government, because in all the discussion of Afghanistan, and I've listened to hours and hours and, and read a ton of stuff uh, this year on what's going on in Afghanistan, corruption is like an afterthought. The corruption yeah. of the government and people stealing and people leaving the country as the Taliban was coming in with you know planefuls of cash and, and things like that. I, I guess I don't even know what my question would be aside from why is the corruption not talked about more? And, you know, how does that lead to, because you mentioned, you use the phraseology, uncomfortable decisions moving forward. Are you talking about us reentering militarily? Are you talking about us negotiating with the Taliban as if they're a legitimate government? But talk, talk a little bit more about the corruption piece, because it's getting short shrift on any of the covers that I've seen. And, you know, and that's the problem. It was always the secondary thought or an afterthought for 20 years, and yet it just proliferated to every possible level. I mean, for Afghans to get basic services done, they had to pay bribes. You know, these are already poor people. You couldn't get through a checkpoint. You couldn't get a passport. You couldn't do anything without paying a bribe. It was absolutely disgusting. To get an interview at the United States Embassy, you had to pay a middleman $5,000. Like these were Afghans coming out of university, and I've been told this from many of them. They had to pay bribes to get jobs, to get interviews to and then you see it with the the infrastructure so um you know the the america would just hand out you know tens of millions for a road project and some company would take it they would pocket 80 percent of it and then employ some very cheap 
labor, uh, you know, foreign company to come in and, and use very cheap materials to, you know, build a quarter of the road that they were supposed to build. And then that would erode within a season. And there was never any accountability. And this just happened on mass scale. You had, you had judges and that would, or, or policemen that would create uh, fake charges against innocent people just so they could get uh, bribe money uh, at the trial. Like it, it just, it was so systemic. And I've been beating the drum about this for years and, you know, into mm-hmm. Thin air. But to me, that really was was the, I would say in my assessment, the leading factor to what brought the Taliban in. Because even if you get to a point where you don't agree with the Taliban's ideolo- ideologically, but you get so sick of being poor and having to pay bribes, and you see your government leaders running around in a Rolls Royce with gold watches constantly, and, and that's going to infuriate you to the point where you're going to want to fight against that. And I think I saw so much, and the Taliban really played on that. They played on this idea of we aren't going to be corrupt, and that's how they were able to recruit so many people. And and still, you know, that is the sort of fundamental message that they're pushing. And and mind you, they don't have the money to be corrupt right now. Who knows what will happen, you know, if and when they do get, you know, much large sums of money. It's it's impossible to tell. But that is a central tenet. And one of the central tenets of Mullah Omar, who founded the Taliban, was, you know, this idea of, of, of beating corruption. Um, so to me, it just it played such a big part right down to, um, the, you know, the amount of ghost soldiers that were on the books. So on paper, there was 300,000 Afghan soldiers, when in reality, it was just their commanders who would literally, when they would die on the battlefield, take their bank cards and continue every month to get their salary out. So when the U.S. looks at it and thinks, OK, well, the, the forces must be strong enough. There's 300,000 of them. Well, no, in reality, there might be 100,000 of them. Um, and that wasn't strong enough to beat the Taliban. So the ripple effects of it are just are so mammoth. Um, and I and I can't drive home how much it infuriates me. And even now, you know, these these government leaders, including the president, who have all left the country and, you know, nobody's ever going to be held accountable. And, and, and you have... You know, essentially in the United States now, many people have been evacuated who essentially already stole millions from the U.S. And here they are getting a safe haven here with no accountability. And it absolutely infuriates me because, you know, we we as Americans, we work hard and, and Americans paid with a lot of blood and treasure in Afghanistan. And um, they sort of see that happen in something that should have been stopped a long time ago. And it just never was. And I really hope that if we learn any lessons out of this, it is you know, you've got to nip, if you're going to go into a country and, and give it large sums of money, you have to nip this in the bud because this is the result you get when you don't. Right. Hopefully the writers of the history books actually acknowledge this as one of those issues. Because again, a lot of people are trying to cover their butts uh, as soon as this went down. A lot of people in government, and we'll get to the government here in just a second, but it has created a ton of issues. And one of the issues that is still talked about, you know, with my friend group, and I know people are worried about it, is the fact that a lot of people were not vetted whenever they were shipped out of the country or brought here or, or repurposed one way or another. And it's always hard, especially if you're a Christian, if you believe in the Imago Day, looking at somebody and thinking, do you want to kill me? I don't know if you're one of the nice people that we should have saved or if you're someone that wants to kill me because 
I understand that the Taliban is not playing 4D chess. You know, our mutual friend, Mike Ritland, is, he basically is very dismissive of their capabilities, uh, you know, in, especially on the battlefield. But do you foresee the Taliban eventually striking the West again with, with a mass casualty terrorist attack, which was basically propagated with this overwhelming humanitarian desire to move Afghans from in-country to elsewhere? Do you feel like the Taliban has is in there? Is ISIS-K in there? Like, I, I don't want to be ignorant about this subject matter, but it is somewhat concerning, no? Right. Well, the Taliban's themselves were not the ones that orchestrated 9-11. That was right. done by al-Qaeda. Um, and again, this is, you know, a subnote. So the Taliban's, and it's, this is also why I'm pushing this point of, of not being tone deaf now. So during the 1990s, the Taliban's were, there was no more isolated government than the Taliban's. They were, you know, completely isolated from the rest of the world um, in terms of, you know, being getting any sort of recognition or support. It just didn't happen. So they had no money in the 1990s. And the one person who came in and gave the money, and not much, mind you, about a million and a half dollars, was Osama bin Laden. So right. naturally, they felt this very kinship to protect him. So when 9-11 happened and then, you know, George W. Bush said, well, you hand him over or we're coming in, you know, the Taliban's with their Pashtun Wally were like, well, no, he's the only person who sort of was there for us during, um, you know, the 1990s. So they had very, very much felt an allegiance to him. And so my point to that is not being tone deaf in 2021 in completely isolating a regime, because that to me is a dangerous national security threat to us, because it, it will be the likes of bin Laden that can sort of come in and give them a little bit of money right. and, and therefore have safe haven and protection and i don't want to see that happen again obviously um so but back to your point on on the vetting issue what i really found was yes there was to get into the airport it was basically a lucky dip you know there were so many people that really deserved to get to be evacuated that haven't been and people i know that had no case never served the united states never supported the u.s in any way and in fact i know someone who was banned from the u.s who is now living in the u.s because he was lucky enough to push through the crowd to get on an evacuation flight and sometimes you even have to question if you're you know pushing through women and children to get your way to the front you know what kind of person are you anyway because it was just it was so chaotic um so I, I do think there are concerns. I mean, I can't speak to any specific terrorist threat. Um, I did speak to some Taliban who said that their families had been evacuated, um, which, you know, was like, well, what is your threat? If your family's Taliban, you should be fine. Um, but, but yeah, it was very much this, very much a lucky dip. Whoever was fortunate enough to get to the gates um, and get inside the airport were taken out. And, and, and that's concerning to me because there was a lot of people who, who never deserved to be evacuated and a lot of people who did, who were left behind. Um, and so that just sort of points to the, the complete disorganization of that whole withdrawal process. Well, there were a lot of things that were infuriating to me with that whole deal, and we've talked about some of them in our previous conversations, but one of the ones was these pictures inside these planes of all these military-aged males. I didn't see a lot of women and children on some of these pictures, and again, I didn't see every picture of every single airplane, to be fair, but it's exactly what you said. It was the ones that were strong enough or dirty enough to, to push their way through and push past the, the elderly and the women and the children in order to get themselves freedom, and now those some of those people are left in country, and they're, they're suffering for that, and this really goes into the part which we, we might just kind of tie it up with this question here is Joe Biden and his administration and the generals obviously are directly responsible for a lot of what happened here because of all the mistakes that were made. Now, I think I already know the answer to this, unfortunately, but I have to ask it anyway. Will Joe Biden, 
and the generals and the people at the Pentagon and the State Department, will they ever be able to live down the, the catastrophic pullout from Afghanistan and all the death and all the pain and the ripple effects that it will cause? Again, I feel like I already know the answer because I've already seen the media ignore it entirely. That's why I keep trying to push people to your content to, to make sure it stays top of mind. But will, will this define these people? I, you know, you know, I still see statements from President Biden basically saying what a success the withdrawal was, which is right. is mind blowing to me. Um, I, you know, unfortunately, I think the American mindset just tends to move on very quickly. You even see with Afghanistan, obviously, the coverage of it during August was basically wall to wall. Um, and then immediately, the, the moment that last plane left, it little plummeted to nothing and, and people moved on to something else. And Afghanistan really was no longer um, anywhere near front and center in the news. So I think that unfortunately, you know, with you know, the, there'll be a subsect of the population, um, you know, especially people that serves in Afghanistan or, or have a real kinship to it, that will remember and uh, and will definitely won't um, won't won't ever forget that. But I think the large majority will just sort of shrug their shoulders and and move on, and that's uh, that's really disappointing. You even see, um, you know, with the terrible situation with the drone strike on the family in Kabul that I met right. with very ma- many times, um, you know that had many children, seven children were killed. One of, one of the men, you know, all his three children were killed. Um, and yet there's no accountability. Nobody's going to be punished. There's no, and I have a real issue with that because you can't go around. And this happened many times during the war and, and was ignored. This time it couldn't be ignored um, because it was so sort of public. But you can't, you can't make those kind of mistakes. The United States is better than that without holding accountability to that. Um, and, you know, that's something that really, that really upsets me. That there is a multiple chain of people are involved in, in making those decisions. And the fact that, that, you know, everybody can wipe their hands and say, well, I, I, it's not my responsibility um, when you've just destroyed lives like that. And, and again, the, this family has not received any 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 phone call from the US, no apology. And that, and we've actually put them or the White House has put them in a more dangerous position because they've gone around saying, oh, we're going to give compensation to this family. Well, that family has not received compensation. And now people around them think they have money. So they are a bigger target um, than they were, you know, to these criminal gangs than before, because suddenly people think they have money, which they don't have. And I just, that broke my heart as an American to, to sit with them many times into to hear their story and to to hear their pain and and to know that that, that there was never ever going to be any any insight and you know and when we don't look at these things and we don't reflect upon them and there is no accountability that's why they continue to happen and they continue to happen and every time you bomb the wrong house you suddenly have an, uh, 200 more taliban recruits um mm-hmm. so you know we really need to if we're going to go into these countries these things really need to be fundamentally addressed because America is better than that. We are a country that is supposed to value human life, you know, in, in, a, in a far more deeper way than, than many of these countries. And yet, um, you know, time and time again, these things happen and, and we don't, we don't adequately address them. We try to brush them under the cover. And I think clearly this is what's happened um, with that particular drone strike and really with the Afghanistan withdrawal overall. 
And that drone strike, uh, it's not shocking to me that they didn't pay because they got the headline. The headline was, we're, we're going to make this right. We're going to do all those different things. But nobody's going to follow up. If you're a Joe Biden fan or a reader of the New York Times or, or you know, you love Jen Psaki, she's your favorite person on the planet. Oh, she said it, so it must have happened. And so it's very easy to kind of get, get mad with all this. But there is a tremendous lack of extreme ownership here. I remember when Jocko Willink around this time did that video on Instagram that went viral, basically, if he were president, what he would have said. And it would be refreshing to hear someone say, one of these people that's currently in the process of failing upwards, right? One of these people that made these horrible mistakes that's going to end up getting promoted for it or getting a bonus for it or something like that. It would be great to hear them admit, yeah, we did something wrong. We absolutely blew it because guess what? I don't want to hear it 15 years from now when they're writing their third memoir, how they feel kind of bad about how they basically wiped out an entire Mm -hmm. family. But we're kind of getting close to time here and I want to make sure that we wrap up with this because we've talked a lot about Afghanistan. You've already expressed that you you want to get back there. You're already itching uh, to get back there, even though, hey, we're just chilling in America right now. You know, the sun's shining, birds are chirping. But what's next for Holly McKay? I mean, are you going to go back to Afghanistan, Syria? Are you going to write another book? Kind of give us an idea. Yeah, I'm actually, my photographer and I are working on an Afghan uh, Afghanistan photo book. So putting that together at the moment. Um, so that'll be out, I think, in around April next year. So it'll be it'll be a little bit different, but it'll be kind of my writing and, and just incredible photographs that um, that Jake, my photographer, took. So it'll a little bit, be a little bit more of a visual experience for people. Um, and yeah, and then I just have a lot of different sort of travel that I'm, I'm going to navigate um next year i think once i I get this done and actually need to find a home because i've been living out of a suitcase for a really long time so i need to get a bit of a home base i think that's important to to be able to continue to do my work and and be able to travel in and out and there are many places um, i'd like to return to i'd like to get back to iraq too and see how that is kind of developing in, in many parts of the world as well so um yeah i think it's uh just uh, chill for December and then and then back in for the new year. You didn't strike me as somebody that was just going to sit in a coffee shop for the next like 12 months or something like that. But what is the best way for uh, myself and our listeners to, to support you? So um, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Holly, H-O-L-L-I-E-S-M-C-K-A-Y. Um, I also have a sub stack, which I tend, you know, I try to sort of put my articles and, and reflections and things in, into that. So that is uh, hollysmckay.com dot substack.com so please subscribe and um yeah and then i just try to sort of post as i as i go so yeah absolutely we'll have all that in the show notes we've talked about a lot today and we've talked about a lot you know in our last three conversations but that's all for me is there anything else you want to get off your chest that's it thank you for having me and and thank you for uh for all your listeners for their continued interest in afghanistan it's important that we, uh, we, you know, we remember what's happening and, and my heart very much is with the Afghan people who are, who are going through a lot right now. Sure thing. Holly McKay, thank you so much for coming back on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed Holly McKay's return appearance to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost at Undaunted Life. Our mission is equipping men to push back darkness. And we do that with content like this podcast that helps you forge spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here are the links I've got for you today. I've got a link to Holly Substack, her website, her Instagram, a couple of places where you can buy her latest book, Only Cry for the Living. Then also her other two appearances on this podcast, episode 188 and 222. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. We do appreciate it wherever you're listening to this. 
Please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at Undaunted Life. That's I-N-F-O at Undaunted Life. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And we also want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. Judah.